Good morning, all. Great to see you. Welcome. You know, when Chris was talking about Peter fishing for some tax money, I thought it's another good reason to go fishing. Which reminds me of spring. Yeah, I'm enjoying that. Hey, we are so excited about getting this uh, series started this weekend, The Grave Robbers. We are going to begin with the first miracle in the Gospel of John that Jesus performed, turning water into wine. And as you may have surmised by now, there are seven miracles of Jesus found in the Gospel of John. And so we will be taking them one at a time over these next seven weeks, ending with the resurrection event on Easter Sunday. So today's text is found in John's Gospel, chapter 2, and I'm going to read for us verses 1 to 11 as we learn about this first miracle that Jesus performed at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. So as you have your Bibles there, turn to John 2. If not, we'll project these words on the screen, and as you're able, would you please stand to hear God's word. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for the ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. May God inspire us today through this powerful story. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Now, as you settle in your seats this morning, you will have the sense that you are sitting completely still, but it is a total illusion of miraculous proportions. Reality is the planet Earth upon which we we reside is now spinning around on its axis. The equatorial speed of the Earth turning, spinning on its axis is 1,040 miles an hour. So we are spinning at over 1,000 miles an hour. The Earth is also hurtling through space making an orbit around our sun, and we are traveling at a velocity of 67,108 miles per hour. That's not only faster than a speeding bullet, that's 87 times, 87 times the speed of sound. We are hauling through space right now. You may, you may have lived a day recently when you thought, I got nothing done today. Just, it was a totally unproductive day, but wait. Even on those days when you feel like you've not done anything or accomplished anything at all, you have actually traveled 1,599,793,000 miles through space. You you made some time. You were moving. You were making progress. It's an amazing thing. Now, some of you have done enough study to know that, that our sun is just one star in the midst of a larger galaxy. 
And our, our home galaxy is called the Milky Way, the Milky Way galaxy. So our sun is just one star among billions of stars inside of our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. So the Earth rotates around our little star within a larger cluster of billions of stars within our Milky Way galaxy. It's a big neighborhood. And so the, the Milky Way galaxy is actually spinning like a top at about 483,000 miles per hour. So we are, we are spinning on our axis on, this, on, our, on our little spacecraft called Earth. We are hurtling through space at 67,000 miles, miles an hour around our sun. <laughs> and within, within our Milky Way galaxy, the entire galaxy is spinning at almost half a million miles an hour. We, we are really, really moving. And it's a miracle. Because you know what? The sun came up at precisely the right moment this morning. And this evening it will go down. It will sit at not, not a half a second late. Precisely at the right time. And you and I didn't wake up this morning going, I wonder if the sun's going to come up on time today. It doesn't worry us. It doesn't trouble us. We take it for granted. And the fact is that God has put everything in its place and has brought order to the universe as we understand it, and he holds it all together by the strength of his right hand. He's a very powerful God. Now, here's my point. You already believe in a God for big miracles. I mean, the really big, big, big stuff, you already trust God explicitly for. The sun will come up. The sun will go down. Everything will be on perfect time. It's predictable. This is, what, this is how we rely on God, and we take that for granted. The question is, can I trust him for the little miracles that influence my particular reality in the day-to-dayness of my own existence? We trust God for the big things. Can we trust him for the little things? It's an amazing world that we live in. You don't have to look in a telescope or in a microscope to see how amazing, how big, and how small the world actually is. Every one of us, our bodies in which we live, is a series of chemical reactions, thousands and thousands, actually millions, yay, trillions of chemical reactions every minute, every hour of every day. We are inhaling oxygen. We are metabolizing energy. We are managing our equilibrium. I mean, just to know that we're upright rather than upside down is an amazing miracle. How, how do we know where we are in, in, in our space around us? It's pretty amazing. We're manufacturing hormones, fighting antigens, filtering stimuli, mending tissue, purifying toxins, digesting food, circulating blood. Did you know your heart will pump over 100,000 times today? And that you have arteries and veins and capillaries that if stretched end to end are about 60,000 miles worth of superhighway that your blood, your, your, your blood flows through, your heart pumps every single day. It's an amazing thing. The fact is you are a miracle. So there are people that you know who said to you, you know, I've never seen a miracle. I've never experienced a miracle. Really? You are a miracle. You're an amazing miracle. If your personal genome sequence was written out longhand, it would be a three billion word book. Let me give you some comparison. The King James Version of the Bible has 783,137 words. So your genetic code is the equivalent of about 6,000 King James Bibles. 
Just you alone. If you were an audio book and you were read at one double helix per second, it would take over a century to put you into words. There has never been anyone like you and there will never be another one like you again. And that's not a testament to you. That's a testament to how big God is, how great God is in his creative authority and his ability. So here's what I'm saying. God is a God of miracles. They're all around us all the time. Albert Einstein said there are only two ways to live your life. One is as if nothing is a miracle and the other is if everything is a miracle. Einstein divided up into those two extreme options. Either nothing is miraculous or everything's miraculous. And if you know anything about Einstein's story, he thought everything was miraculous. Oliver Wendell Holmes once said that a mind stretched by a new idea never returns to its original shape. And that's what I'd like to try to do during this series the next seven weeks is to expand our minds, stretch our minds, and, it's, and enlarge our hearts and, and strengthen and grow our faith to begin to think in terms of, of bigger, bigger capacities that God Almighty has available to us in our lives. God is the one who makes the impossible possible. You know, ever since, ever since that boy came out of that grave after three days, the word impossible really has left our vocabulary. Right? I mean, he was dead and he got back up. That's like a big deal. It's a big deal because that's not possible, right? Only he did. And so impossible is not in our vocabulary anymore. I want to lay some foundation today. And the first point that I want to make, it's on your outline there, is during the next seven weeks, let's, let's make, make our focus on our priority seeking after Jesus. Let's seek Jesus. So this is actually a word of caution. I think God wants us to do wants us to consider Jesus. Now, I believe God wants to do miracles, and I believe he does, and I believe he will, and I believe that every miracle is just a a small little snapshot of what God wants to do in all of our lives, and this this is a series about, about miracles that Jesus performed in the Gospel of John, but it's not just about miracles. It is about the only one who can perform miracles, and it's right to have that distinction, to make that priority, to get that perspective, that Jesus is the one we seek. So my advice at the beginning is not, let's not seek miracles, but let's seek Jesus because he is the one who is the winemaker. He is the wa- water walker. He is the grave robber. That's who he is. Now here's Jesus. So we find in, in John chapter 2, this first miracle, Jesus for 30 years has been working at his stepdad's carpenter shop. We know he's a carpenter's son. And he's been at work. Now think about that. This is Jesus. He is the pre-existent, co-eternal word of God in flesh. He knows he's God at this point. He's aware of it. But he's kept it under wraps for 30 years. How many of you realize this is the best kept secret in history? For 30 years, he lays low. I mean, can can you see him filing on a table leg in the carpenter shop? You know, sweat's running down his face. Joseph said, those legs have to be perfectly straight. Get them straight. And he's in there going like this. And, you know, how many times would he stop and go, you know, I don't have to do this. I could just make the legs straight. Sand it all nice and smooth. Everything could be perfect. I just go, shazam. And there you go. 
But he kept it all under wraps until this moment at the wedding at Cana. And so this woodbender now becomes a waterbender. There are 34 distinct miracles of Jesus recorded in the Gospels, seven here in the Gospel of John. This first one, water to wine, which we'll talk about more specifically in just a moment. But in John 4, he heals a nobleman's son, and the nobleman comes up to him from distance. He's miles away from where his son is sick and asks for Jesus' healing power, and Jesus, Jesus heals the boy from distance, which shows the latitude and longitude of Jesus' miraculous power. He doesn't have to be in the immediate presence of someone to heal them. He can heal them from distance. That's an interesting concept. Then in John chapter 5, he reveals his mastery over chronology. He walks up to a guy who's lying by the pool of Bethesda where, where people who were physically handicapped and mentally disturbed would often gather. So you have the blind there and the crippled there. Here's this guy. He's been crippled for 38 years. And Jesus walks up and says, you know, may I help you? And the guy said, well, you know, there's no one here to help me get in the pool because, because there was miraculous properties in this water at times. And, and the man said, no one's here to help me get in the water. And Jesus said, well, you know, you forget the water you know, would you like to be well? <laughs> and the guy said, okay. <laughs> and Jesus said, well, take that mat you're laying on, get up and go home. <laughs> we'll get into that story. It's a, it's a powerful moment of how he can reverse 38 years of pain and suffering with a command. Then in verse six, uh, chapter 6, he introduces a new miraculous equation, feeding the 5,000. 5 plus 2 doesn't equal 7. It equals 5,000 remainder 12. We'll get into that. And, and his encore in chapter 6 is walking on the water of the Sea of Galilee. Amazing miracle. Then in John 9, there's more to the miracle than meets the eye. Not only did he heal a man who is blind, but he heals a man who was born blind. Which means that something in the, in the, the whole mechanics of the man's vision is broken down. Either his eyeball is not able to gather light properly, or the optic nerve isn't sending the signal or that the visual cortex in his brain isn't interpreting what the, what the eye is seeing. Somewhere in the loop, there's a shortcut. Something's unplugged. It's just not working. And he was born that way. He's never, seen, he's never seen anything. And so Jesus heals the man born blind. It's an amazing miracle, a, cre a creative miracle of God's power. And then finally, in chapter 11, the grim reaper is on display here versus the grave robber. This is the tomb of Lazarus, and Jesus steals back what the enemy has stolen from Lazarus and his family, and that's what he does. That's what Jesus is. He is the one who reverses all of the evil that the devil attends for us, and we'll save that miracle for Easter. So John chapter 2, we set the scene. There is an interesting cultural reality in this wedding. For a Jewish family to run out of wine is not just, not just embarrassing, it's shameful. Now, I've been at some weddings that if they'd run out of wine, that would have been a good thing. But in this case, running out of wine, culturally, it, it, it rises to the level of ruining the day. And there's one day in your life that you want everything to be perfect, right? It's the wedding day. I mean, there's been so much investment in this, in this party that you want it to go well. 
And for something to happen that can ruin it, that's what's happening here. I, I conducted a funeral years ago. I, I've officiated, as you can imagine, a number of... of uh, did I say funeral? Yeah. <laughs> that was Freudian for sure. Yeah. I would rather do a funeral than a wedding. That's a fact. You say, oh, pastor, no. Yes. <laughs> Let me tell you why. Because there's, there's so much cultural pressure and social pressure around, around a wedding these days that, that, that the expectations go way, way up with regard to all of the amenities and, and all, of the, uh, all of the details, the amount of money that is spent on, on a modern wedding. And it just, it's, here's my point. It's, it's not that a celebration and a party is a bad thing, but what can happen and oftentimes does is that you can miss the point. You know, it's so much about the dress and the flowers and the cake that you forget the main thing. And that happens. I, I was officiating a wedding years ago, and I, and I would describe it as the most opulent wedding that we've ever had at Union Chapel. I mean, folks were just over the top in every way. And I felt bad for this guy who had to pay for this wedding. Uh, but he was, you know, he was soldiering along. And every detail, I mean, it was just incredible. I mean, the, the bride's gown was just magnificent. I mean, it was just something. And not only was the gown beautiful, but she had a train that went on for, for several feet. It was just, I mean, it had, the, the train of her dress had to have its own attendant. I mean, it was like it had its own zip code, the train. It was, it was everything was, and at, in the sanctuary, the center aisle was, was all put, put together, and there were these six sets of candelabras that went up the center aisle and they each had several candles on them and it was everything was just over the top and so the wedding began and the groomsman and the bridesmaid had processed down the aisle and now it was time for the bride to process and she was on the arm of her dad and they turned the corner to come down the center aisle and the attendant to the to the dresses train just for a couple of seconds lost her focus. She got distracted. She, she, she relaxed. Something happened. And the bride had already made the corner and was going down the aisle. She was several feet down the center aisle. And I'm sure the attendant thought, she's clear. But that, that train hadn't cleared the corner. And the last six inches of that train caught the bottom of the candelabra. I know. And as she kept moving, the candelabra spun like this and then tipped and over it came. And bam, right on, it landed on the train. People were jumping out, you know, putting out the fire like this. The bride stops, looks back, sees what has happened. Now imagine all of the planning, all of the details, all of the money, all of the expectation. Everybody wound up just as tight as a human being can be wound up because this has to be perfect. And now the candelabra has fallen on the train, on the floors, and the bride looks back and she turns and her face is starting to contort because she is going to explode with emotion. And just before she lets go, 
her dad leaned over and whispered something in her ear and her countenance immediately changed. She got a little smile on her face and actually giggled. Composed herself and came on down the aisle. I thought, that boy just, he not only paid for this wedding, he just saved the wedding. We got through the ceremony, everything was great. We got to the reception and I made a point. I made a, as soon as the, the, the opportunity was there, I made a beeline for dad and I said, you know you saved the day. He said, I know. Not only did you pay for the day, <laughs> but, but you saved the day. He said, yeah, I know. I said, you have to tell me, what did you whisper in your daughter's ear? Because I saw. And he said, all I said to her was, well, one down, six to go. <laughs> was that, that's perfect. That was perfect. That's all it took. And, she, and it, and it, and it allowed, allowed her to relax, to get perspective on the whole thing. Because if daddy can make light of that, then I'll be fine. That's just awesome. It's just great. Now, this miracle in Cana, it's on your outline here. It's the second point. This is a miracle about saving face. Now, watch this. Get, get into the story. I think maybe this little faux pas may have precipitated the first fight between the couple. I mean, later that night, could you hear them, maybe? Maybe, babe, I did all the wedding planning. I only asked you to do one thing, stock the beverage bar. That's it. I gave you the guest list. I gave you the wine list. That's all you had to do. You messed it up. How can you run out of wine? It's not even possible. Then enter Jesus. <laughs> Here's what I love about this miracle. It's not about saving a life. I mean, it's not the end of the world. I mean, if you run out of wine at the wedding, I mean, you know, it, there are worse things that could happen, right? It's not the end of life, but it is about saving face. Now, let me tell you why that's so great. It means that we have a God who is not just great because nothing is too big. He's great because nothing is too small. Follow this now. This is important. He cares about the details and the nuances and the minutia of our lives. He really does. If it's a big deal to you, it's a big deal to him. This is the God we serve. He cares about you and about the smallest part. I wish I could tell you some stories. There are, there are moments when God and his tender mercies, as the Bible calls them, his care, the fact that he knows the number of the hairs on our head, you know, that kind of detail. And, 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 he, and he, he notices, he notices you. He notices, he notices what's happening. He notices moment to moment what's going on in your life, in your circumstances, and he cares about you. So Jesus says to these attendants, uh, these uh, six water pots, fill those up. Now, if I was a servant, <laughs> I would push back against that. I just, I just know my, the way my brain works. I would say, dude, we're not out of water. We're not out of water. Because this guy has no track record of miracles. This is Jesus. He's been, he's been undercover for 30 years. He's emerging now, and the only reason he's moving now, some speculate, is because his mother said, come on, let's get this going. And so, so he, he comes along, he says to the service, hey, fill these pots up, guys, with water. I'd go, that's crazy, that, that's, that's not going to help. We don't need water. That's not the problem. But this is, this is something that we can learn from. Sometimes I think it doesn't make sense to us what God asks us to do. And so we hesitate. But what I love is the language here. They didn't just take the jars and fill them, 20 or 30 gallons each, but they filled them to the brim. Remember the precision of the language there? They filled them to the brim. 
all the way to the top. Now I want to put a statement on the screen because this is going to help someone here. Now look at this. If you do the little things like they are big things, God will come along and do the big things like they're the little things. In other words, one of the things you're going to see during this series is that sometimes you have to do the natural thing so that God can do the supernatural thing. We do what we can do, and then we let God do what only he can do. And that's an important part of the process. You never know when or where or how God is going to show up. And that's what I love about this story. It seems like maybe the least significant miracle, but he is the God who shows up when we run out. And we can identify with that, can't we, when we run out? Because there may be people even in the room today, you're out of strength, you're out of wisdom, you're out of friends, you're out of money, you're out of hope. You just run out. And that's the point. He's not just the God who turns water into wine. He's the God who can turn fear into faith. He's the God who can turn sadness into joy. He's the God who can turn anything into anything because he's a great God. And that's why we serve him. And that's why we follow him. Now let's get to the last point here and kind of fill in this miracle. Number three on your outline, when you open your life, you should open it to God's miracles. Open your heart, open your mind to God's miracles. Before we talk about Jesus turning water into wine, let's talk about water. Two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. Water, the most basic chemical compound in the world. It covers 71% of the earth's surface, uh, comprises 65% of our bodies. Water has no caloric value, yet is absolutely vital to our metabolism. You won't last more than three days or so without it. It's flavorless, but nothing tastes better on a hot summer day, right? It's, it's the universal solvent. It's fundamental to all life on the earth. It puts out fires. And what else would you swim in? And so it's just water. Can we, let's just pause for a moment and say water is a wonderful miracle of God. And we thank him for it. So the master... The master of ceremonies put it this way to the bridegroom, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the best until now. Jesus didn't just save the day, he made the day. And isn't that what he does? Isn't that what he does? He makes the day? The raw material for the first miracle is water, the most basic compound on the planet. And I think that's significant. It's almost profound. It's a reminder to us that God doesn't need much to work with. He really doesn't. And the real truth is he doesn't need anything at all. He is God, right? And he can turn anything into anything, and he can do in three seconds what should take the natural sequence about three years to, to do. Heard the story of a scientist who was becoming more and more bold and filled with hubris and challenged God. You know, bring God. And I'll challenge him in the creation of a human being because this scientist had already cloned a human being and created a human being in the, in the lab. And so he was ready to challenge God with creation of another human. So the scientists and God in this uh, mythical illustration assembled in front of the masses and the scientists decided to go first. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, in order to create a human being, first you have to take some dirt. God said, hold it. You got to get your own dirt. 
Explain that to the person next to you if you actually understand it. Explain it to them on the way out and then uh, they'll get it too. God, you understand God works from nothing to something. Started with nothing and made this universe that we live in. It's an amazing thing. I suppose Jesus could have started with grapes and it still would have been awesome. He could have miraculously expedited the fermentation process and that would have qualified as a miracle. But starting with water, I think Jesus is demonstrating that he can start with the simplest element on earth and turn it into something beautiful, something flavorful. And if God can do that with water, then I suppose he could do just about anything with your life or mine. Yeah. So the God who spoke everything into existence, the one who can mutate any molecule, and that would include blood cells or brain cells or cancer cells. Here's my point. I think our cells are like Legos to Jesus, just easily manipulated and moved around. And I want you to know where I'm coming from. I believe in miracles. I really do. I believe in the miracle of medicine. I mentioned last week the miracle of my wife Beth's healing from cancer years ago. And I am so grateful to the local surgeon who, in his expertise, diagnosed her disease and removed as much of it as possible from her body. I thank God for competent medical training, pain meds, respirators, MRI machines, the amazing work of medical specialists of every imaginable field, making miracles happen every day in our world. I love the story that I've told you before from one of our delegations to Kazakhstan years ago where an internal medicine specialist agreed to go and, and offer some help in a medical clinic in, in Taraz. And the day before he left, he was gathering up supplies from his office to take with him and could not shake the urge to pick up a large bottle of vitamin D out of his cabinet. And, and it was a big bottle and it was heavy and it was bulky and he just reasoned with himself that it was going to be too much to carry and too difficult, too much of a hassle to include in all the supplies that he was taking with him. And so he would take it out of the bag and set it back on the shelf. But he, and he said he finally got to the door and could not leave that vitamin D in the cabinet and went back and just gave in to this impulse and put the vitamin D in his bag. And three days later, he's sitting in Taraz, Kazakhstan at our, at our development center when a woman, a mother in tears, rolls her 16-year-old son up in a wheelchair in front of them, and the boy is crippled. His hands and feet are contracted, and he is unable to walk or manipulate his hands in any way. And the, the mother in tears said that we have taken him to every doctor in Kazakhstan. No one knows what his problem is or how to help him. And now the physician is moved to tears because he knows the boy's problem. And the only reason he knows the boy's problem is he saw one case of it 25 years earlier when he was still in medical school as an intern when the case was presented. And now he knows in that moment how to help, in fact, to completely cure this 16-year-old boy. What has happened to him is that he has a deficiency in his body, a vitamin deficiency that when he reaches adolescence, his bones continue to grow quickly, but his connective tissue, because of the deficiency, did not keep up pace with the, with the growth of his bones so that his limbs began to contract, which would have left him permanently disabled. But there is a cure, and it's the replacement of that vitamin which he is deficient in, and it is vitamin D. And so the physician reaches into his bag through his own tears now, hands the bottle to the mother and says, give him one of these tablets per day, and in six months, your son will be completely healed. 
That's a miracle. Every part of that story is a miracle. It's just a wonderful story. So I call that a miracle. But listen to me. There are times when God will step in and step over the very laws of nature that he created. He made the rules. Listen, he can break them anytime he chooses. And I don't totally get when or how or where or why. I know this. But we are headed toward a moment in human history where there is going to be no more sickness and no more death and no more sorrow and no more pain. Because one of these days, we're all going to step past the the time-space continuum that we live in here in our earth suits, and we are going to be in an eternal state. And the Bible promises that there's going to be nothing but perfection there. No more tears. No more sorrow. No more grief. No more pain. This, this is the promise of God, and that is a miracle. Here's what I want to suggest. When we pray this little prayer that the Lord gave us, and we use this phrase, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I submit to you that we don't have a clue what we're talking about. None of us realize even a little bit the implications of that prayer. Because Jesus encouraged us to say, Lord, whatever's going on in heaven, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What he's saying is you should pray and believe and expect that the goodness of God and the greatness of God, his love and grace and mercy and power and joy and peace and wholeness of every variety, you should believe that that's going to come to your experience on the earth. Whatever's happening up there should come down here. Up there, down here is our prayer. Up there, God, down here. And that should embolden our faith. And this should be a reminder to us that God expects us to believe him for great things, for miraculous things. You know, one of these days, uh, we're going to be completely whole. And I think of loved ones that you may have and friends that we've known who've developed dementia or Alzheimer's. And people literally in your physical presence fade away. It's one of the most challenging experiences that a family can go through. But listen to me, grandma's going to get all of her memories back, all of them. She's going to be completely whole. Isn't that great? We, we think about some of, our, uh, some of our heroic veterans who have returned from these most recent zones of conflict around the world. Some of them have been disabled, horribly disfigured. Some of them have lost limbs and worse. And here's the promise that one day all that's going to be restored. All of it's going to be restored. Everyone's going to be made whole again. Isn't that just, isn't that just wonderful? It's just an awesome thought. I uh, heard the story of a group of entrepreneurs, young people, really smarty pants people who were gathered at a conference for entrepreneurs in, in Las Vegas. And one of, the, one of the little exercises that they did with them is they gave this group of young entrepreneurs a stack of six Lego bricks, little two-inch by four-inch Lego bricks, six of them, and ask them to estimate the total number of unique combinations that you could create with these six Lego bricks. And it gave them about 10 or 15 minutes. So these young people were playing with these Lego bricks, trying to imagine. So how many unique combinations ca- can you come up with? And after several minutes, they asked them, and one guy said, well, a few dozen, probably. And another said, well, a couple hundred. And then the, one of them really smart thought, well, this may be a trick question. So he says, you know, probably a few thousand combinations are possible with these six bricks. Then they gave him the answer. 
They said, okay, six Lego bricks, two by four inch bricks can form 915,103,765 different combinations. <laughs> Everyone had underestimated what you could do with six Legos. And we get to this story today and we wonder, why don't we talk about these six stone jars? Same difference. And Jesus doesn't just turn the water into wine, he turns it into fine wine. And not just one bottle, but the equivalent of 757 bottles. And that's a veritable vineyard. It takes about 2.4 pounds of grapes to produce one bottle of wine. That's nearly a ton of grapes. Where did they come from? How did he do that? And I think that's the point, right? That's the whole point. There are hundreds of chemical compounds in red wine. So to say that Jesus turned H2O into C2H5O8 via the fermentation formula would be a gross oversimplification. The miracle actually involved a hundred different chemical reactions. And I don't even have time to read the equation to you, but the precise mechanism that Jesus used to turn water into wine is a mystery. But that's what makes it a miracle, right? It's miraculous. And here's the whole point. Jesus is saying to us, watch my mastery at a molecular level, all the way down to the basic building blocks of the world. It is all from him and for him and to him it shall return. He is the great and glorious God who has creative authority and the power to back it up. And he can do anything. I'll remind you that science has suggested to us that there are a number of atoms in the known universe. And the number of atoms in the known universe, they speculate, is 10 to the 82nd power. So 10 times 10 times 10 times 80, 82 times. 10 to the 82nd power. It ended up being a really big number. And every single one traces its origin back to the words that God spoke at the beginning of creation. God spoke four words, and it started everything. He said, let there be light. Let there be light. And suddenly, the creative authority, the, the uh, incomprehensible power of God now is unleashed in what we know as the known universe. And light exists. Scientists now, you know, we, we live in a scientific age. You know, atheism is getting traction because we all know science is, is actually giving us a, a fine explanation for everything that exists. Really? The, the, the most prominent scientists, astrophysicians in, in, in the world are saying to us, look, we, we understand the known universe at about a level of 5%, maybe 5%. They, they will look at you now and say, look, we, really, we know that there's mass in the universe right now that we can't even see. We can see the effect of it here and there, but we can't actually see it, let alone measure it. And he said, and, the, and they'll say that there's energy in the universe that we not only can't measure, we can't even comprehend. God spoke four words, let there be light. Let me tell you about the Doppler effect. I don't know if it, this is like a science lesson. The Doppler effect is, is a, a principle in physics that a guy named Doppler in the late 19th century figured out. The Doppler effect is when you're standing on the side of the road and an ambulance is coming toward you on the road with a siren on, 
as the ambulance gets closer to you, it sounds like the siren is getting louder. And you think, well, it's because it's closer. It's not because it's closer. The siren isn't getting any louder or softer. What's happening is the Doppler effect. The, the, the ambulance is coming toward you, so the source of the sound is moving toward you, and the siren is giving off these sound waves. And sound waves come through the air, you know, and that, that's how we hear it. And so sound waves are being pushed out of the siren, but because it's moving toward you, the sound waves are actually piling up on, they're backing up on themselves. So it, as it gets closer, it sounds like it's louder, but it's, it's not actually louder. It's just because the sound waves are hitting your ears more frequently because the sound waves are kind of piling up because the source of the sound is moving closer to you. And so as you get, it gets closer, the sound waves just stack up on top of each other. And it just sound, so when the, when the ambulance gets right next to you, it goes, whoa, that's loud. It's because, it's because the sound waves are just pounding you. But the second, the second that the ambulance goes by you, the sound gets less, like the volume has gone down. And it's not because the siren's any less loud. It's because the sound waves now, the, the, the source of the sound is moving away from you, so the sound waves are spaced further apart. The Doppler effect is actually part of the created order. So God said, let there be light, and the sound of God's voice, the authority of his creative power, goes forth into the universe, and it just starts stacking up on itself, and entire galaxies start blasting into existence. We know that the universe we live in, I mentioned that we live in the Milky Way galaxy, and there are billions of stars like our own sun within our Milky Way galaxy. Well, there's billions of galaxies in the universe. It's a big neighborhood billions of galaxies with billions of stars in each one of them, like our sun. And what we, what we know from what we can observe and the best we can come up with, because we, our little brains are just little tiny little things like this, and for us to come to a place where we say, well, we're tr I'm trusting, I don't believe in God, I'm trusting science to tell me what, what, what is reality. What does the matter with you? What we know about the universe is that those four words, let there be light, is still taking effect because entire galaxies, even while we sit here in this moment, are being formed at the outer edge of the, the whole universe is expanding. What we learn from this is that whatever God starts never stops, that his word never returns void, that what God promises to us, you can take it to the bank. Because he has the creative authority and the power to back it up that whatever he says, you can count on. It's a great God. Great God. So for Jesus to, to flip some water into wine, I mean, it's, it's almost humorous. It's child's play. It's amazingly easy. The Dutch theologian and former prime minister of the Netherlands said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It all belongs to him. You know, back to the Legos, back to the Legos, as someone said, we should let go and let God. <laughs> After all I've said today, that's what most of you will remember. So hang on to it, let go and let God. What was that sermon about? Oh, yeah, Legos. If I ask you to close your eyes today and visualize Jesus, what would you see? If 
I close my eyes and think about Jesus, I'll tell you what I see. I see two images of Jesus. The first one, I see, I see Jesus uh, in a very casual moment with children all around him. Playing with those children. With both he and they laughing and giggling, carrying on. The second image, if I ask myself to visualize Jesus, is I see Jesus standing right before me, or I before him, and he is in his glorified state. He, you know, it's a white robe, and he's glorified with scars showing. You understand that, the, that Jesus is the firstborn of the resurrection. He actually has his physical body today. He took again his body. He's the, only, he's the only dude who's had that experience. We will all have it in the resurrection. He's the firstborn of the resurrection. So Jesus is glorified in his earthly body and scars and all. You, when you meet Jesus, you will see his hands pierced, his feet pierced, his side pierced. You will see that in a glorified way. For some of you, and I have to be careful about how I say this, some of you would visualize Jesus in this most dramatic form, hanging on the cross, an image of grace, sacrifice, and love. I want to be careful how I say this because in reality, Jesus is not on a cross today. The only thing on the cross of Jesus today are your sins, the ones you've confessed. Your sins are there. But Jesus is not. The Bible says that Jesus has risen from the dead and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Check the Apostles' Creed. And from that seat he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. So we see, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body. The life everlasting. Jesus went to the table with his disciples for the last time. We call it the Last Supper. The disciples didn't know it was the Last Supper. They just thought it was supper. But Jesus knew it was the Last Supper. And they had seen him turn water into wine. The last verse of our text today is, and his followers believed in him. They saw him multiply food, loaves and fish. They saw him walk on the water. They saw him resuscitate the dead at the tomb of Lazarus. They, they'd seen some things, but they weren't ready for this last miracle. When Jesus took the cup that night, and he raised it, and he said, Brethren, I know this is a cup of wine, but now it is my blood. It's the blood of a new covenant. And so what Jesus did is he took an ordinary cup of wine, and he turned it into a bottomless glass of grace. And said to his friends, if you accept the gift of forgiveness that I offer you, then you'll be included in my kingdom. Forgiven of your sins, the greatest miracle of all, washed of the impurities that separate you from your God and establish you in a righteous relationship with him. And all the benefits of my kingdom, all the blessings that I have promised, all of, the, all of the promises I have made 
will be yours. And so Jesus said, if you want the great miracle, only believe. Only believe. It's the step. It's the yes, the great yes to what God has done for us. So as we uh, pause to consider this first miracle today, let's remember where this wine ultimately takes us to the hope of forgiveness for all of us. And may you be the recipient of that grace. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, we humble ourselves before you. We declare your sovereignty. We declare your authority as if we could declare anything else. How foolish of us to believe in anything other than a God who with four words spoke the universe into existence. The God who can turn water into wine. The God who can take the sin in our life and forgive it. The God who can take the sickness in our body and heal it. The God who can take those broken places in us and bring wholeness. Lord, I pray today that you would stretch our faith. Lord, stretch it out so that it never returns back to the same place. Help us to believe you to make the impossible possible. Lord, enlarge our faith. Increase our expectation. Help our focus to be on you, the miracle worker. Jesus, we look to you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, as we sing today and all the weeks during this series, we're going to open the front of the church for you to come and pray. Maybe you need a miracle. Maybe you know someone who needs a miracle. Maybe you need a touch from God's grace in some other area of your life. And, and God will be here to meet you. And there will be folks at the front to pray. Beth and I will be here to, to pray if you'd like. So feel free to come forward if you'd like as we sing our closing song. Would you stand with us now?